We are nearing the end of our studies in Genesis, today coming to the last words uh, of the patriarch Jacob, almost to the last words of the patriarch Jacob. We'll look uh, one more time, if the Lord is pleased to prosper my schedule, uh, we'll have one more sermon uh, in Genesis in just two weeks. I'll be on vacation next week, and so we'll have Nathan Dix with us uh, to fill the pulpit. Um, but we will come, Lord willing, in two weeks to finish out our studies in Genesis. Today, looking at the second half of this Father's blessing in chapter 49. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 13 and read through verse 28. For a bit of context, we will begin again uh, with verse 1 before we do that. So, Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, and then verses 13 through 28. Before we come to read God's word, let us pray again for his blessing upon it. Please join me. O Lord, our God, you have given us yourself in your Son, and you have given us your wisdom in your word. You have spoken to us in this word, which is living and active. And so we pray that you would use it as a sword of your spirit to divide us, to lay us bare before you, to show us our great need of your salvation, of your Son whom you have sent. Point us, O Lord, in the direction of him, our Savior, and help us to long for your salvation in the day when faith shall become sight. Do this, we pray, by your powerful and working word. As we read it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And now verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, the first and probably most important thing that you need to remember about these words of Jacob as we begin to look at them is that uh, Jacob, Israel here, is speaking as a prophet. Israel is a father. Israel has sons whom he loves and he speaks to them and, and blesses them out of a father's heart of love, but that is not all that he's doing. He is not merely representing himself. He is not merely representing his own father's heart of love for his children. He is speaking as the mouthpiece of God. He is declaring prophecy over these sons. He is telling them that what will happen in days to come. Now, that is important because some of these blessings, if they were to come merely from a father, don't seem like blessings at all to us. Consider, uh, for example, Issachar. There is all of this animal language here, all of this imagery in this chapter, and almost everybody gets something good. You think of uh, Benjamin. He's a wolf, strong and ravenous. Naphtali is a doe, beautiful and, and free and sure-footed. And even Dan gets to be a viper, if that's a good thing. But then there's Issachar, and he's a burrow, a pack mule. He is a beast of burden, spending his sweat for someone else's gain. And if Jacob were speaking from his own initiative, we would say, that's a pretty strange blessing, Jacob. Where's the encouragement from a father? Where is the affirmation for your sons? Don't exasperate your children, Jacob, we might want to quote to him. But this isn't about affirmation and encouragement. And this isn't merely from Jacob. These blessings come from the heart of a father who is much more loving than Jacob. Much more gracious and much wiser than Jacob. These blessings come from the heart of the father who always gives perfectly good gifts to his children and just what they need at just the right time. These gifts come from the father who knows that there is something more to be desired, more to be waited for and looked upon and longed for, and safe havens, and bounteous food, and rich abundance in the land. And we see that. Verse 18, we see what is worth waiting for and longing for more than all of these other lesser blessings. And Israel interrupts himself as he is. He's going around the room speaking to each of his 12 sons, but he stops and he takes his eyes off of them and turns them to heaven. And it's there in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your redemption. I wait for deliverance on high. That's what he longs for. That's what is worth waiting for. And that is the direction the Lord is moving his children with all of his blessings. Whether they seem at first to be the kinds of blessings that we would want or the kind of blessings that we don't want. They come from the wise heart of a loving father who always gives good gifts to his children. And in this prophetic word, we need to recognize that salvation is what all of God's blessings are pointing to. When God blesses his people, it is not merely meant to increase our possessions or to give us comfort. God's blessings are meant to increase our longing for him and our desire for salvation, so that we would say and be able to pray together with Israel, I wait for your salvation. Now, that is 
something that we need to remember. Because that means that sometimes the blessings that we need are not the blessings that we expect. Often not the blessings uh, that we may want. Yes, sometimes God's blessings come to His children in the form of gifts, gracious things that we are happy to have and, and a, a foretaste of what salvation is like. That's a blessing when we, when we receive good things from the Lord and we are happy and blessed and we experience joy and return thanksgiving to the Lord. But sometimes God's blessings come in the form of warnings as well. It is a blessing for you parents to take your children aside as they're getting older and to tell them this is what life is like as an adult in the world. These are the things that you need to watch out for. These are the things that you need to be on your guard against. That is a blessing for your children when you do that. And it is a blessing for the Lord when he warns his children as well. And that's what we find here. They're all blessings. And some of these blessings come for these 12 sons in the form of gifts. And some of them come in the form of warnings. But all of them are pointing God's people to the salvation that is waiting to be revealed. We're going to look today at uh, two of these gifts. We're going to look at two of these warnings. And then finally, we're going to look at an example of what it looks like uh, to wait for the Lord's salvation. So if if you prefer, this could be a five-point sermon, but I'm going to put them together in three headings because I feel comfy that way. (laughs) Two gifts, two warnings, one example. Let's start. The first gift that we see in, in no real particular order is the gift of belonging. And here is the point at which you realize all of those genealogies that you're tempted to skip when you're going through your Through the Bible in a Year uh, reading program, all those genealogies you're tempted to skip actually mean a whole lot. Because as you notice the details and the way that, uh, that Israel is going through the room and going through his sons, there is a strange order here. He doesn't uh, address his sons in the way that we might expect in birth order. Uh, in fact, uh, Zebulun and Issachar ought to be numbers 10 and 9, but they are 6 and 5, and they're, they're in the wrong place, and they're reversed, and, and in the middle it gets uh, all wonky, and the sons are out of order. So it's not birth order. We've got the, uh, the oldest first and the youngest last, but in the middle it's, it's a mismatch. And the other thought, some people say, well, they're ordered according to their mothers. Well, not quite. We do have all the sons of Leah first, and we do have the sons of Rachel last, but in the middle are all the sons of the concubines just sort of jumbled together. And that ought to be the clue for us. The strange order that Israel is giving as he goes through his sons and he gives a blessing to them is that they are ordered by class. There are sons of the prominent first wife. There are sons at the end, almost, he saves the best for last, his favorite children of the favored wife. And in the middle, there are just the sons of the servants. That's what they were. It's Dan, and it's Gad, and it's Asher, and it's Naphtali, and they're lumped together. And you could go back to chapter 30 if you wanted to, and you could read about all the turmoil in the family. You can remember the way that Rachel had the idea first to have sons through her maidservant, Bilhah. And it was her way of getting what she thought God had withheld from her. In fact, you can read the way that she went to her husband and said, Give me sons or I will die. And he said, Am I in the place of God that I should give you sons? But she knows how it works. In that time, if you were a prominent woman and you had a maidservant, you could give your maidservant as a concubine to your husband. And because the maidservant was your property, her children would be your property as well. And so that's what they did. And Bilhah was given to Jacob. And a child was conceived. 
and a son was born. And when that son is born, Bilhah goes back to work, and Rachel rejoices. Rachel names this son. Bilhah doesn't get to do that because she is still a servant. And she will remain a servant. And the birth of a son to her, her husband through concubinage, I think that's the word, uh, doesn't set her free for even a day. And all four of these brothers, Gad and Dan and Asher and Naphtali, grew up knowing that their mothers, Bilhah and Zilpah, were but servants in the family. Now, I know that some of you come from pretty messed up families. Uh, and that's going to be said about a lot of us. Uh, but it is sometimes hard to wrap our mind around just how dysfunctional this sort of family would have been. It's hard to wrap our mind uh, around the way that these brothers probably lived with a sense of inferiority all their lives long, knowing that they were really just the sons of the servants. So imagine knowing that when you were born, there was rejoicing because there were these two rival sisters who were married to the same man, and they were trying to one-up one another. That's what Dan means, by the way, the first of these sons born to the servants. His name means judge, so when we come to it, uh, he says, you will judge, but it's actually Rachel saying, God has judged me, he has vindicated me. Finally, God has smiled upon me, and he has raised me above my sister Leah, who has all of these sons, and I have none. And it's, it's one-upping one another. It's these two sisters married to the same man, and it's hard to imagine the dysfunction. You can also probably imagine the way that as Jacob went around the room pronouncing his blessings, that he would come to these four sons, and they would not have been surprised at all if he just skipped right to Joseph and Benjamin, if he just went past them. Maybe a consolation prize, maybe a, a little badge of something to put somewhere, but he doesn't do that. He comes to Dan. He comes to the oldest, in a sense, the, the representative of the sons born to the servants, and he gives him the gift of belonging. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. You hear what he's saying there. There's no second-class citizenship in this family. There is no one brother greater than the other brother in the sense of one who belongs and one who doesn't belong. And some may get greater blessings in terms of worldly gain, and some may get these warnings, but he's saying, even so, you are my sons and you belong. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter the sordid background that you've come from. You are included in the family. This is a picture for us of God's grace. A picture for us of, of the foretaste of salvation because Jesus came eating and drinking with sinners and with prostitutes. Jesus came uh, to seek and to save the lost and the downtrodden. He came to speak mercy and to peace to those who the world has discarded. And well, we might say, consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you of, of noble birth. Not many powerful and yet God gives the gift of belonging to his children. It's a reminder, not because of our impressiveness, not because of our pedigree, not because of our righteousness or our wisdom or our worthiness. God gives the gift of belonging and he calls us as his own because he wants you to be captivated by his salvation. He wants you to see what a gracious gift it is. So first, there is the gift of belonging. 
And second, there is the gift of possession. This is really what this whole chapter is about. Uh, As Jacob is going through his sons, he is laying out what their lives will be like in the promised land. He is reminding them there is yet this place back in Canaan when finally all of God's promises are completed. And today we looked at Genesis 15 in our Sunday school time together. This promise that the people would be taken down into Egypt in a land that was not theirs and they would serve for 400 years. And they're yet at the beginning of this and Jacob is saying, no, 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 there is a possession for you. Because you belong to me, because you're a part of my family, because you have inherited this covenant, you also will inherit a possession. And it's baked into all of these sons. We see it most clearly in Zebulun. Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. His border shall be at Sidon. That's inheritance language. That's language of a geographic boundary. He's saying there will be some physical possession for you. That's part of the gift of being here in this family. Now, as we've gone through these studies in Genesis, really just looking at the last main section of the book, we have yet noticed this major thread that flows through the entire uh, story of Genesis. This idea that, that there is this covenant promise between God and His people. And one of the very important aspects of that covenant promise is the receiving of land and of a possession. And it's gone down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and now he is passing it on to his sons. This is covenant language. This is possession language. And he is saying this is what you get when you you are part of God's family. And Israel is reminding his sons of the same gift, that those who belong to the Lord have an inheritance that cannot be revoked. Now, you may remember that in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter picks up on this same language. It's no longer just those who belong to Israel by flesh, but those who belong to the Lord Jesus. And he begins to speak of a possession that can't be taken away, an inheritance uh, that is kept for us. This is what it says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You might remember that Peter there is writing to ethnic Jews, those who were of Israel by flesh. And yet he says, you know, all this language of this land of rest and this land of promise and this inheritance and this possession, it was really pointing us towards something much bigger. It was really pointing us in the direction of the salvation that the Lord was going to give. This possession that is bought by the blood sacrifice of Christ, that is secured by His bodily resurrection and given as a gift to all those who are God's children by faith. This is what all of this possession language has been pointing to. It's been a signpost so that we would look together and say, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. You know, interestingly, this is the first place in Scripture, uh, verse 18, that the word salvation shows up. It doesn't show up, this, this particular word, anywhere before this. You may also know that this word is Yeshua, which becomes uh, the base of you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I don't think uh, that Israel quite knew that connection, but we do. Looking back, we would say he was waiting for God's salvation. He was waiting for a possession and a belonging, but he was looking for a salvation that he might not have known yet, but that we see clearly in Yeshua, in Jesus, 
in the Savior who was to come. And all of this language, all of these gifts given to the patriarchs are meant to cause us to say the same thing that Israel was saying here. Lord, we look for your salvation. Isn't it wonderful to be a part of his family and and to belong to him? And to know that because Christ has come and given of himself, he has purchased for us something and given to us something that we could never purchase or gain for ourselves. This is what these gifts are all about. They're meant to make us look and say, oh Lord, what I want and what I desire, what I long for at the core of my being is to know your salvation, to see the glory of the Savior, and to be a part of this family that he is gathering together to himself. And so we see these these two gifts, the gift of belonging and the gift of possession. But then there are these warnings, these strange blessings that uh, that we don't quite know what to do with. I think there are, uh, to keep things uh, parallel, there are two warnings that that we want to look at. You may be able to find others later. Uh, But first, there is a warning against comfort. Let's consider this prophecy to Issachar. Uh, It says in verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. Now, you've got a a footnote there in your ESV, and that's pretty helpful. I think it points us to a better translation. Rather than sheepfolds, it's it's something like saddlebags. Here is this beast of burden. In fact, he's a strong donkey, not just any old donkey, but he's a strong donkey, well able to carry any load that you may put on his back, but instead, oh, he just lays down for a little bit. Just a little bit of rest, a little bit of slumber, a little bit of holding the, fa- the hands to sleep. We know the rest of that proverb, that ruin will come upon you like an armed man. This is the picture of a capable beast who is a strong and a working animal, but would rather rest than work to receive what is coming to him. The sad irony, really, is that Issachar is portrayed as one who refuses to work for himself and so ends up working for someone else. There's slavery language. No, no, I'm just going to to settle in here. I'm just going to be at peace. I'm just going to let things come to me the way that they may, and I'm I'm not in any hurry, and I'm just going to, to dally a little bit, and we'll see what happens, and it turns into slavery. And because he won't work for himself, he is forced to work for someone else. He bowed his shoulder to bear, became a servant at forced labor. That's what it says. Now, this prophecy for Issachar uh, fits perfectly what we know of the half-hearted conquest of the promised land and the northern tribes especially. Here comes Issachar and Zebulun and Dan and, and some of the others who were in that area, and they are given a command from the Lord to go in in the time of Joshua and drive out the Canaanites to bring God's sort of judgment against these sinners and to go in and to take what the Lord is giving to them. But they get up into those uh, northern areas and, you know, it's, it's pretty lush up there and things are nice and there's lots of room. Let's just take it easy. Let's not complete the job that the Lord has given us. And, you know, it's almost harvest time and it looks like there's room for them and us and so maybe we'll get around to that later. Maybe we'll deal with the Canaanites later, and we'll take what the Lord has for us later. For right now, let's just focus on all of these good things. And that strategy had reverberations down through the history of God's people. Because they began with just seeking a little bit of ease. And a little bit of ease becomes a little bit of compromise. A little bit of compromise becomes a little bit of religious pluralism. A little bit of religious pluralism becomes pragmatism. And you know how it works. If you've got one problem, you go and you inquire of Yahweh. And if Yahweh doesn't give you the answer that you want, and maybe not in the time that you want it, well, there are those bales 
Remember, they're there, and we, we were going to drive them out, but isn't it so nice that they're there and they're accessible? And go speak with the Baals and, and give sacrifices to the Ashtaroth, and maybe in a few generations, even sacrificing your children doesn't seem like such a big deal, and that's the downward trajectory of God's people in the promised land. A little bit of ease, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of pluralism, a little bit of pragmatism, and before long, it is out-and-out out idolatry and blasphemy and apostasy. And they practically don't even know who the Lord Yahweh is anymore. You say, it happens so gradually. When, when did that happen? When, when did we make the switch from being God's people to, to forgetting who the Lord was? But they were warned, weren't they? They were warned against complacency and against comfort. The same thing happens to us, that our sin begins with a desire for comfort and not to be ruffled and just to let a few things slide and it's, it's not a big deal and it turns into slavery, doesn't it? This is the downward trajectory of our sin. Sin is slavery. Sin enslaves us. Sin entraps us. And it's amazing the ways uh, that we will legitimize and, and, and skirt the issue of our sin because it makes us feel comfortable and there's something that we want to hold on to. And I've got room in my life for this and just a little bit of that. It's just a little thing. The Bible tells us what to do with our sin. And just like the Israelites going into the promised land, it is violent language. It tells us to mortify our sin, to repent of our sin, to fight against our sin by the power of the Spirit. But it's so much easier just to lay down and rest and to coddle those things that make us feel comfortable. And pretty soon the churches get into the mix. And we start to do a little bit of substitution. And gospel repentance is substituted with self-pity. That's what you do with your sin. Just feel bad about it. Don't repent of it. Just, just feel sorry. And that's good enough. And then spirit-empowered obedience is substituted with let go and let God. It'll happen. Just wait. Just wait and see. And, and we forget this language from Paul of pressing on and fighting and, and stretching and running. And mortification is substituted with acquiescence. And pretty soon, you can't remember how the preaching of salvation from sin turned into learning how to live in your slavery. That's the way that it happens, and that's what's happening in our age. We're living in a time when we are hearing and living and longing for a Christianity that is soft and easy and comfortable. Something that makes us feel good. And sin is being presented as something that you can just live with and and learn to walk around and work with rather than something that we fight against. And we just we shrug our shoulders and we put it on our social media and we say, oh, I'm just being authentic. This is my struggle. Here it is. There's nothing wrong with admitting that you struggle with sin, but so often that authenticity, that acknowledgement of the struggle takes the place of actual struggle. And we're more willing just to talk about it and how hard it is than to, than to dig deep in prayer and spirit-led obedience and repentance over and over and over again, not in our own power, but by the power that the Lord supplies by His Holy Spirit, and to fight against those sins. The warning to Issachar calls his sin the first comfortable step into slavery, his desire for ease and complacency. And it's the beginning of what it feels like to have no longing for salvation. 
Brothers and sisters, it's a blessing if we heed this warning. Beware the snare of comfort as you wait for the Lord's salvation. Secondly, uh, in this category of warnings, is the warning about conflict. You see this with Gad, verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. This is almost the antithesis of the message that was given to Issachar. Issachar was willing to sell his birthright for a little bit of comfort and ease. But Gad is warned that when he goes into the land, his entire stay in the promised land is going to be hard fought. He is going to have to become a battle-hardened warrior. All the days of the tribe of Gad, he's going to be hard-pressed and attacked. But in the end, he's going to come out on top. That's what that second line means. It says that he will raid at their heels. Now, if someone is raiding you, they're coming in a marauding band, and then all of a sudden you're raiding at, that heels, at their heels, that's because they have turned around and they're fleeing. And this is the promise uh, to Gad, actually, that things are going to be hard and they're going to be difficult and you're going to be raided, but that raid and, and that affliction that you'll experience in the promised land is going to produce something really wonderful and strong in you. And that conflict actually will become a blessing for Gad because he and the men who come after him will be unparalleled warriors in the history of Israel. And you can read about it, especially in First Chronicles chapter 12. There is a list of the mighty men who joined themselves to David. Saul's still king, and, and people are beginning to defect, and, and he's gathering some troops. And it says of the tribe of Gad that mighty and experienced warriors came, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. And the least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. And they crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks, and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Now, in, in terms of Israelite language, these are the special forces. This is SEAL Team Alpha, uh, the Gadites, and, and the warriors that they would produce in the land. And it was because of this conflict. What a blessing that they would be so rough and ready and warriors. And can you imagine, though, Gad as he stood by his father's bedside? Uh, Dad, are you sure uh, that's, that's the word that you wanted to give me? Are you sure you don't have me mixed up with Asher? Uh, because he's getting royal delicacies, and I'm getting conflict, and I, I'd, I'd really rather have some of what he's got. But that's not what it was. It was a warning that your time in the land is going to be full of conflict, and God's blessing for Gad was the furnace of adversity to smelt away all the dross of his complacency. But so often, this same promise to us, when we read it in other places in the Scripture, whether we're willing to admit it or not, this same promise to us becomes a stumbling block. Timothy, says Paul, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There will be conflict. Friends, says Jesus, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. And they're going to speak against you. And they're going to say all manner of evil thing against you falsely on account of my name. And I'm warning you now at the beginning, this is, this is what it's going to look like. My brothers, says James, count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. And we say, actually, you know, I, I'd, I'd really be quite happy to have people like me. I'd really rather uh, that people thought I was 
just normal. I, I don't really want all this conflict in my life. I don't really want to be persecuted for the sake of the name of Christ, but that's what it looks like if we are looking to Him, and if we are waiting for His salvation, and if our life and our longing is desiring for Him and what He has for us. A couple weeks ago, I was at that conference that I told you about, and Al Mohler was one of the speakers. Al Mohler said something at that conference that has been ringing in my ears since he said it. He said, one of the most insidious presumptions in the church today is the idea that we can be at peace in a world that is at war with God. It's a reality that in our lives, as we wait upon the Lord's salvation, there will be conflict. And it's not a way, you know, sometimes we take a guilt trip about this and we say, well, if I don't have enough conflict, clearly I'm not strong enough of a Christian. No, there, there are ebbs and flows and there are seasons and there are tides that change. But you are aware of the culture that we live in, aren't you? You are aware that if you go into the public sphere and you speak the name of Christ and you talk about sin, you will be hated and persecuted. We may not see the same things that are happening in Sudan. They will speak all manner of evil things against you falsely on account of His name. And you will face conflict and you will be in the land wherever you find yourself and and you will not be popular and you will not be liked and you will not be thought of as normal and you will be thought of as strange. One of those weird people who talks about sin and redemption and you'll be called a bigot and you will face conflict. But one of the most insidious presumptions of the church today is the idea that we can be at peace with a world that is at war with God. We may not like conflict. We may not want conflict. Yet the Lord is telling us that it is worth any loss in this dying world to set your sights on things that are unseen and to wait for His salvation. That's what these warnings are aimed at, to cause us to wait for His salvation. Now, we have uh, just about exhausted our time, and we haven't even talked about Joseph. Don't fear. Uh, We we don't need to take another half hour uh, to deal with Joseph because you may have guessed that he's our example in this passage. And by the time we've gotten this far, all the work is done, and we can simply look at Joseph. We We can realize that here is the picture of one who, by God's grace, set his eyes and his heart and the desire of his heart on the salvation of the Lord waiting to be revealed. Think about the gifts that Joseph received from God. All the way from that first dream of honor and accolade up to being established in the land, being given free reign for his family, the gift of abundance and fruitfulness that he speaks of in the text that we've read. He had wonderful gifts from the Lord. He was also a person who faced adversity and conflict and struggle and trial. You think of the brothers who were against him and who hated him. You think of the temptations that would have been so easy to receive with open, complacent arms. Think about the temptation just to stand before Pharaoh and take credit for himself. But he doesn't do that. At each turn, at every gift that he receives, at every hardship that he encounters, he turns his eyes to the Lord and what he is doing in his life. Joseph's life, I hope you've recognized it as we've gone through these studies, Joseph's life is a living exposition of verse 18. He could say together with his father, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. How can you know that? Well, Because 
in every situation that Joseph uh, was put into, into every situation he was put, the name of the Lord is on his lips. He showed up in Egypt and he was tempted by the wife of his master. And what did he say? God is watching over me. And he would met scared men and with strange dreams in a dungeon. And he told them, God is speaking to you. And he was cleaned up and dragged before Pharaoh and stood before the, the most powerful man in all the world. And he said, God is revealing himself to you. And then things started to go well for Joseph. And he was established in the land and and he was made a ruler and second in charge in the most powerful place in the entire world. And he was given a wife and he was having children. And what did he say? God is blessing me and making me fruitful. And then his brothers showed up and he was finally able to confront them. These brothers who had sold him into slavery and, and this whole debacle that had consumed 25 years of his life. And what does he say? God is working salvation among you. The whole time, Joseph has had his eyes on salvation and what the Lord would be doing. The word uh, in, uh, in that earlier chapter actually is deliverance, but it's the same idea. The Lord is working deliverance. He's working salvation. He could say together with his father, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He could say with the tribes of Israel, I wait for the day that my belonging will be revealed. I wait for the day when my inheritance will be seen. And I'm not content with the comforts of the world. I'm not surprised by the conflicts that I face because all of them draw my eyes to you. And I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The only question that remains is what are you waiting for? Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for these studies that we have been going through seeing your work in the life of Joseph, seeing your work through Israel, and seeing your work through all the rest of these brothers. We thank you for the way that you have been revealing yourself and working salvation. We thank you that Israel was looking forward to the Son who was to come, the one who was to be revealed, to save your people to yourself, to give us an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven waiting for us. Oh, Lord, keep us looking and longing for that salvation. Keep us desiring that we should be your people, and that you should be our God, and that you should deliver us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims the salvation of our God. This table which points back to the sacrifice which Christ has made of himself, his body and his blood given, uh, pictured here for us in the symbols of bread and wine. But it's also a table that looks forward uh, to the inheritance that we are waiting for, to the possession and to the belonging that we will have when Christ comes again to take himself to his people, take his people to himself, excuse me, uh, and we will be with him and we will experience that belonging.